So we are at July the 23rd, 2017, lecture discussion number 290 on the Book of Romans and what is the hottest, best, most beautiful day in the, of the year here in Anchorage. It's almost 80 and everyone has gone fishing, except for a few of us, the most holy of all of the cliffside people. So welcome, those of you on the internet. This is mostly for you today. Lots and lots of stuff to sift, to sift through. If you have been taking advantage of up to heretofore constant rain or the, or what we call camping, the medical professionals do not call what we do camping. They designate it uh, differently, usually hypothermia. But uh, it is today that's all changed. Everybody's gone because you will not perish. You won't drown this week apparently in the in Alaska from the rain. But if you've missed the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot. There's going to be a lot of referral to those today. And if you've been absent since April, it might be problematic. Otherwise, you're going to be fine. So, Lecture 289 last week was the beginning of the ending of the process that constructs the timeline of Satan. Let me repeat that. I have a timeline of Satan, and last week I began to end the timeline process. Actually, at least, let me be a little bit more accurate, at least recently this has been a narrowing of those actions of Satan that culminate at Genesis 3, 14, and 15. So I am establishing as best I can the timeline of Satan to Genesis 3, 14, and 15, not so much Revelation 11 through 20, chapters 11 through 20. The focus has begun, I'm sorry, the focus has been on the beginning of Satan's timeline, assuming that you, once that's established, the rest of it is uh, a little bit more accessible. So lecture 289 began my final arguments with respect to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Job 38, and Genesis 3. So let me put those on. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 3, Job 38. Now I could, I, oops, I could put 1 through 38 in Job. Job is an amazing book that has a much, much uh, information on the character and the mot- motivation of Satan. I should say I have been attempting to restrict the discussion to those events at the beginning of the trail of, of the serpent. So um, the first of the traceable occurrences, if you want to follow it that way. And it should be said that wherever in Scripture... Satan is found, he's identified, whether it's Revelation 20 or Job 1 through 2 or Matthew 4 or John 13, 27. Let me tell you what those are. Obviously, Revelation 20 is when Satan is mounting his last vestiges or his death throes. Job 1 through 2 is where he attacks Job. Always ask, why is Satan attacking Job? What's the point? What is Satan trying to prove? What is the argument, if you want to think of it that way, between Satan and God? Matthew 4 is Satan and God again, right? Satan may not know that, but that's Satan God again in the wilderness or in the desert. John 13, 27 is Satan and God one more time, except this time Satan is inside of Judas. So whenever you find Scripture that Satan is identified, All of it, everything about it, all of those passages I just gave you, and many, many more, they're all conjoined together. They're all glued together, if you wish to think of it that way. Nothing is estranged from from anything else. All things of Satan are to be recognized as evidence of his motive. That, I believe, is why God inserted them in Scripture. So that you would be able to figure out what Satan is thinking. Every piece will provide evidence, I'm sorry, information probably better, testimony as to why Satan thinks what he thinks and why his thoughts cause his subsequent actions. In other words, the total stratagem of Satan can be deduced by careful collection of his revealed words and the assembly of his movements and deeds in the Bible. And I was talking to Supper Dave beforehand. I have lots of people that tell me this. Uh, it's very common to hear it. It's considered to be, I guess now it's, it's unassailable logic. But they say to me, 
I don't need to study Satan at all. I can study, if I worked in a bank, I'm just given counter, I'm, I'm given genuine currency and I handle gen, gen, uh, sorry, genuine currency over and over and over again, so much so that when counterfeit comes into my hand, I immediately feel and recognize it. And that analogy doesn't work here. The reason it doesn't work is because money is physical. Satan is not physical. There's a philosophical element to Satan. There is a logic element. You, you must not only understand what Satan is thinking, but also what is wrong with it. Otherwise, you cannot refute it. With money, you don't have to refute it or counterfeit. You just have to identify it. That's not the case with Satan. Satan's thought processes. His thought processes require counter-processes or countering. If you're not able to say to your children... That is what you have just expressed to me about God is part of the lie of Satan, and here is why it is a lie, and here is why Satan has said it. When they go to college, they will come back with every single lie of Satan. The colleges are marinated in the lies of Satan in the philosophical sides. You're constantly running into them as a parent or as, as an individual. They're just everywhere. They're on your television. They're, they're, they're just incessant. So, it's important to know what they are. What is the strategy of Satan? How you can figure it out? How you can deduce it? All you have to really do, frankly, is collect everything he's ever done and put them all together. How easy is that? Lecture over, eat chicken. (laughs) I often say, when God intervenes, it's one of my rules of reading Scripture, whenever you see God move, especially in a powerful way, when God intervenes, pay attention. Invariably, God is protecting or he is defending his plan of salvation. He's defending, protecting the truths of Jesus Christ, the doctrines of Christ, the salvation of Christ. That's what he does. Everybody sees what he does and they go, oh, look how mean, capricious, nasty, evil God is. He, he came in and he slew all of those really good, wonderful people who were doing fantastic, genuine, altruistic things. They were just innocently minding their own business and God killed them. We can never follow a God that is so evil. That's what I hear constantly. And you will hear it constantly as you go through your life. Whenever God moves, he is defending the truths of Christ. He is defending salvation. He's defending. And those are words not to be assigned to God because he's omnipotent. That's humanistic phrasing. Understand that. But these are the doctrines of Christ that God has intervened for. So pay attention to that. So when finding God... Moving, search the passage of the scripture that you're in for the assault on the truth of the blood of Christ. Whenever you're confronted with God moving, find why. Why is he moving to to defend his plan of redemption? What is happening here? What is the great wickedness that he is ending? Especially approach the Old Testament with that perspective. Every time you do that, the Old Testament will unveil itself. When God comes, Genesis 3, God comes. This is the trial of Satan here. God has done something extraordinary. He has come. He's assembled. Satan is in front of him. Whenever God and Satan are side by side, pay attention to that. Something amazing is happening there. If you don't see the amazement of it, then back you go. Genesis 6, Genesis 7. He floods the earth. He stops the Nephilimic mutations of Genesis 6. Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, whenever God does something, Melchizedek, Genesis 14, and, and the king of Sodom, whenever Satan and God are side by side, boy, that is an exciting place in the Bible. And it takes, that's where you're going to learn what Satan's counterfeit is and how he presents it. Why it has prevailed. It has prevailed. Let me ask this question again. How many of you here today, I won't ask you to identify yourself by name, it wouldn't take very long. We must maintain the uh, illusion that this is a massive congregation here today. So, you have the responsibility to laugh at my jokes, and much louder than normal. But I could ask you, how many of you have been fooled by Satan? How many of us have been fooled by Satan? The answer is all of us. So how is it that he's able to do that? So, 
when God moves, when God and Satan are side by side especially, but when God intervenes, then pay attention. At a much, much lesser degree, you should be doing the same thing. Satan can be evaluated in a like manner, in a similar manner. When Satan surfaces, when you find him in Scripture, stop and go, okay, I'm reading something here that is amazing. If I can't figure out why it's amazing, what's the problem? It's me. When Satan surfaces and does something, anything, it's an extraordinary circumstance. Never pass over it quickly. Figure out why it's extraordinary. Very likely it's a demarcation. It's a turning point. It's advised, it is advised to register the significance. At least know something has happened here that you don't understand, but don't go by it fast. And don't think that it is not important to you. It is. And that's where we find ourselves today, hopefully. That's the approach we're going to take. If I had to choose, and as the overseer of the most holy dry erase marker from Japan, which makes it far more holy than it would be if it were American-made, I think, because I have it in my possession, reminds me of the movie. If I have it, it makes me more powerful. You know the movie. Lori can do the voice really, really well. Scares the grandchildren. It's fantastic. But because I have the dry erase maker, I get maker marker. I get to choose, and I would select from last week this issue. The issue of the angelic realm as it is in opposition to and also in comparability to the human realm. So that's what I want to address today. To rephrase the question, which has prominence or who has prominence at Genesis 3? Are you reading Genesis 3 and saying to yourself, this is about Adam and Eve. Is that what you're doing? I'm going to tell you, don't do that. Because I don't believe Adam and Eve have prominence there. Now, we're human beings, and we have a tendency to look at our team. Our team is the human team, so all we see is the human team, and we think all that's on the field is the human team, and the Bible says the opposite of that. There's two teams on the field. So which team is Genesis 3 primarily about? Remember, Satan is there. Which team is Satan, if you want to think of it that way? Is he human? Clearly not. So who has prominence in Genesis 3? The angels, both unfallen and fallen, are Adam, the federal head of the organic earth. Or if you prefer, the former king of the, if you wish to think of it this way, who has prominence? Satan, the former king of the mineral Eden, or Adam, the current federal head of the organic Eden? And I submit that the impact of the angelic realm is often disregarded in Genesis 3. I believe that's an error. It is an error, I should, I would say. And um, it's my position that the angels are what is being addressed there primarily. Now, let me make the case as best I can. What is the condition of the angelic host at Genesis 3? How many humans I got? Let's just talk about numbers. Math's pretty easy. How many angels do I have? Millions. Are they all there? Satan is there and God is there. You think they're all there? They're all there. How many humans? Try it again. Math two. How many angels? So, what's this about? It's again my position that the angels have experienced chaos. Sin has run amok. Remember I said my position. People disagree. I'll explain where they disagree in a second. Sin has run amok. The heavenly estate is in disrepair. And I believe that that is the context. This is the context that Genesis 3 happens. So here I have my timeline. Here is Genesis 3. What am I saying about the time before Genesis 3? I'm saying that the angelic realm is in chaos. Sin has overwhelmed it. 
my timeline, as you can infer, has the fall of Satan prior to the fall of Adam. The corruption of one-third of the residents of heaven, I'm, I'm proposing, I'm submitting, predates the sin of the first federal head of earth. All of that is here. Think of it this way. Angelic disaster. Chaos. Sin. We'll get into what else is there. That's occurred before Genesis 3. That's my position. And some disagree. I would counter that those who disagree and say the timeline that I propose is not correct. I'm going to say that the timeline that I'm proposing is consistent with Ezekiel 28. It's consistent with Isaiah 14. Genesis 1 And it conforms to the tribulational war of Revelation 12. I have a tribulational war in Revelation 12. Now, some disagree about that. I put the the war of Revelation 12 right here, right right to the end. Some say no. Some say it belongs over here. So understand that there's some disagreement. But I believe that the, what I'm giving to you, and I wouldn't give it to you otherwise, is that, it, uh, that this position conforms to the tribulational war of Revelation 12, as well as Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 1, as well as offering an explanation that can withstand scrutiny with regard to Job 1 through 38, or 1 primarily, 1 and 2. John 13, Revelation 20, Matthew 4, Daniel 10. Revelation 13, Revelation 17, just to name a few things that are consistent with the angelic disaster being prior to Genesis 3. And that should be the aim, right? What what best fits the known knowns, the known facts? Let's just take John 13. Satan enters Judas. Why? I think that has something to do with the fall of the angelic realm. And the angelic realm has to occur before Genesis 3 for that to be a consistent position. Satan confronts Christ at Matthew 4. Why did he do that? It just happens then. Oh, I see, I see this guy. He's out here in the wilderness. I think I'll go down and see him. Or I'll go up and see him. Or I'll go sideways and see him. I'm the king and the prince of this earth now. If I'm Satan, look at that guy. I think I'll go over and pester him. See what he can do. See if I can what? Corrupt him. Why do I want to corrupt him? Do I have a pattern of corrupting people? When did that start? Do I have a pattern of corrupting angels? When did that start? Who's watching me and him? Again, this is God and Satan together in Matthew 4. He may not know that at the beginning. But he gets a clue at the end. Satan confronts Christ. Why does he do it? The unfallen angels, after that happens, come down and minister to Christ at Matthew 4. Why do they do that? I'm telling you, it comes all the way back to here. Everything is glued together. Everything is connected. Everything is linked. Genesis 3 is an amazing place in the Bible. And it's time to begin to consider just exactly the impact it has on Scripture. Satan calls the Antichrist up from the abyss immediately after there's a war in heaven that he loses. So Satan loses and he calls up the Antichrist. That is not coincidence. That is cause and effect. Revelation 13, Revelation 12. Why does he do it then? He's just lost a war in heaven. How is he happy about that? He's filled with incredible rage. How is, and immediately after he loses that war, he attacks Israel, the woman, if you will. He attacks the woman in the here, of course, at Genesis 3. Why did he attack the woman? These are not hermetically sealed, autonomous, isolated, happenstance events. They are interdependent, interconnected. They are cause and effect, glued together. Whatever phrase lights you up, 
try to look at them as a whole as much as you can and don't think that they're individualized. They are not. They all, it's a wagon wheel. There's spokes going back to the center. What's the center? Okay. What I'm saying is show me the relationship. Show me the timeline, the sequence within the chain of events. Uh, and that, I think the answer is uh, in the chain of events. Why these things happen, when they do, and, w- and what the purpose of them are. So that's why the timeline, the sequence is so important to me. I was talking to Therithathy beforehand. We're trying to solve this electronic issue we have with the new digital mixing boards. And I've called the manufacturers and I said, give me the sequence of events. What do I do first? What do I do second? What do I do third? It is part of my mathematical upbringing. I want to know the order. Give me the order. They wouldn't give me the order. It drove me crazy. You might think that I have long been crazy. And it's just revealed to you. That's the old issue that sports does not build character. That is true. As somebody been in sports my whole life, sports does not build character. All it does is reveal character. Anyway, show me the timeline. When I see the timeline, the chain of events, then there's the answer. The answer is going to come out of the sequence. Okay, enough of that. Last Sunday, I pretty much ended with all with these two questions. I asked this. How did the abundance of Satan's traffic, and that is a key phrase in Ezekiel 28, how did the abundance of Satan's traffic transform the structures of heaven? So I want you to imagine heaven, and now Satan comes and attacks. It's called the abundance of his traffic. How does the debris in the angelic estate now compare to what we see here, the decay and the destruction of the earth. We have destruction in both places. We have the heavenly estate destruction, and we have the destruction here on earth. In case you are wondering, this discussion is Romans 8.22. Ah, a Romans verse in a Roman study. Who'd have thought? That's amazing. How does he do it? Notice it's really dark in here and I can't see anything. And it's dark in here, for those of you on the internet, is because it's unbearably hot. What we call unbearably hot is about 79 to 82 degrees. I think that we're logical and reasonable and actually correct. You folks in Phoenix, 122 you call unbearably hot. That is not unbearably hot. That is uninhabitable. That is, that's crazy. You have to be crazy to live there. So, we're miserable, and we've turned the lights out in order to keep it from getting hotter in here. That's our plan. <laughs> so, where am I? Let's start at Romans 8. I'll start at 19, because it says something very interesting in 19. For the earnest expectations of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Oh, my. You see sons of God, you might think that that's human. And you might be right in this case. But sons of God is very, very often in the Bible, the angelic realm. So set that aside. Don't get bogged down to it. Here's verse 20. For the creation was subjected to fertility. The creation. Now, you might think that the creation is what? Just the physical creation? It doesn't say that. It says the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself, and that willingly is an amazing word, isn't it? That has implications that just explode both directions. If God, if it wasn't willingly for God to have the creation subjected to fertility, how did it become subjected to fertility? Because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The whole creation has become subjected to dysfunction, to entropy. 
not just the angelic realm, but the earthly realm, I'm asking you, what is the relationship? If we looked up at the heavenly realm and we look at the earthly realm, and both of them now are in destructive uh, chaos, uh, how do they correspond? Nothing is as it was originally designed. All of it, all of it means all here. Whole means whole. The whole of creation groans in pain. The heavens and the earth. So here comes the inevitable timeline question again. Which came first? The groanings of the heaven or the groaning of the earth? Which one fell first? Some will say they're simultaneous, to be fair. Some will insist that this is a simultaneous event. The heavens and the earth are the universe. The, the physical and the spiritual both went into dysfunction simultaneously, into decay, into destruction. Uh, uh, you can inspect that proposal, see if it will offer congruity to the passages that are impacted by it. There is a war in heaven as an example. I said it a few minutes ago, Revelation 12.7. If Revelation 12.7 is a tribulational war, one that concludes with a victorious angel celebrating with great joy, what is the precondition, the pre-war condition of heaven? I have to fight a war, apparently. Not I. They have to fight a war, apparently, to cast Satan out of there. How much damage has he done? And they are really happy to get rid of him. And he is really angry when he's knocked out. And he comes to earth. And it becomes really bad. Let me repeat. How did the pre-war state of heaven come to be? How long has heaven been in this Static condition of destruction. Try it this way. When did heaven become a place of violence? As the Bible says, it's in a, it's in a violent condition. Who caused the violent condition? Why is it, why was it caused? You see, I think it's valuable to consider the turmoil that Satan's abundance of traffic effected and the aftermath. To repeat from last Sunday, Satan was furious, raging, when his plan had a 67% failure rate. He had a 67% failure rate. Did he think he was going to have a 67% failure rate? How do I know he has a 67% failure rate? The Bible tells me he had a 67% failure rate. He only took out a third. And it made him violently Angry. Furious. How many did he expect? How many votes did he think he was going to get? 100%. He thought his ideas were so amazing that no one would, no one would not follow him. He'd get them all. In the tribulation, with the Christians gone, with, or the church gone, with the 144,000 and the two witnesses here, how many does he convert, Satan, to worshiping him and the Antichrist? What percentage does he get? How many people refuse to follow the Antichrist? How many people do you suspect, what percentage will not take the mark of the beast, which is a worshiping mark, as well as an economic one? What's his percentage then? Remember, the church is gone. How many did he think he was going to get? Why did he think that? How good of a plan did he think he had? Ezekiel, he, he was devoured by his hate when his plan only got 33%. Ezekiel 28:16 through 18. Filled with violence. So I know that the heavenly estate, based on that, is filled with violence. What does that mean? How much destruction did Satan bring to heaven? What did it look like before, and what does it look like now? Now, again, it's a spiritual uh, construct, but it has some physical characteristics that are described as physical. So, from its original state, the creative condition of heaven, to its destroyed, corrupted, 
defiled state. Try to imagine the difference between the two places. What do you think it looked like? Now we'll go to Ezekiel 28, 18. You defiled your sanctuaries. This is God speaking to Satan. I am going to propose. Some disagree. We'll get to that in a minute. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your sins, your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading, by the abundance of your trading. It's a similar phrase. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, and it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror. You shall be no more forever. That's God. Again, the disclaimer, many commentators do not accept this verse as being applicable to Satan. They see the horror and the be no more forever to be specifically now returning to speak of the earthly kingdom of Tyre or the kingdom of Tyre. In other words, they will say to you that Satan, the discussion on Satan ends at verse 17. It does not include 18 or 19. And I would suggest that the first word of verse 20 reflects the change of the subject, because that's then. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. I think it is clearly talking about Satan. You were the seal of perfection all the way. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. I think those reflect each other. There is no insertion into the, of the king of Tyre, a physical human there. That is talking about Satan, in my view. No people disagree with me. How come? I have no idea. I'm stunned as you are. But they do. And you need to know it. Okay. A human king of Tyre, how can he be more of a horror, made a horror than any other man? There are lots of horrible men. I would say to you, the king of Tyre cannot be made more of a horror than... we got guys in Muldoon. I shouldn't pick on Muldoon anymore, huh? We could pick on Spinard. But God is saying this. He says, whoever he is talking to, he is saying that he has become a horror. That's God saying that. Keep that in mind. Anyway, how much damage, keep pounding this question at you, has heaven, how much damage has Satan caused in heaven? How much devastation? Again, imagine the two before the damage, after the damage. How much damage? What is the mood, the countenance of the angels who are in the 67%, who refuse Satan's lie? How are they feeling? Let's just make it a feeling thing. What do you think the morale of the unfallen angels is right now? How's heaven looking? I'm going to say to you that it's, it's, it is a mess. I think it's obvious it's a mess because when they finally remove Satan, they are filled with joy. They are, they are, they weep for the earth, but they got him out of heaven. It took a war to do it. And they're joyful. But again, they weep for us. What is the mood of the angels who refuse Satan's lie? Take the other side. How are the fallen angels doing? Which army has the highest level of morale. Who's winning? As we would count winning. I'm saying this mess is the backdrop of the environment that is the prominent factor in the trial at Genesis 3. So when you're looking at Genesis 3, take into account the angelic disaster, if you will. That is the prominent backdrop context of the trial of Adam and Eve. And that is also the destroying of Satan. God says, I have destroyed you. Genesis 3 is the destroying of Satan. We discussed that last week. That is the casting of Satan to the dust, to the ground, the cursing of Satan, at the revealing of the lake of fire. These are to be measured against the rampage of Satan and his angels as they went through heaven raking destruction. And then this also continuing 
onto the domain of humanity. Satan's spreading of his rebellion onto the earth. I think that is the order. So first I have the, the explosion in heaven, and I now have an explosion in earth. And they happen successively. One, two. That's the timeline. You put them where you want. I also think that at Genesis 3, as you've heard me say, the lake of fire is revealed. That is a big deal. So what I am saying to you is there's been all of this destruction. It has moved to the earth. He has now brought destruction to the earth. The man and the woman are outside of the relationship with God. Satan has done it again. God comes and has this trial. And inside of that, the lake of fire is revealed. So, let's continue. Heaven had been wrecked, and now the carnage would come to the organic earth. To repeat, figure out the mood, if you will, of the believing angels and the unfallen angels. I believe that the unfallen angels are hurting badly. Fallen angels are exultant, thinking that they're prevailing. And now Genesis 3 comes. So all of that that I've talked about has come, but then now here comes Genesis 3. And that is a turning point. That is a dramatic change. Most commentators that I have read, I'd say overwhelming, they see Genesis 3 as a failure not discount that it is a failure. It is. Adam has fallen. He has sinned. Uh, His sin is a complex thing. It's nonetheless sin. Through the sin of Adam has come physical death to everyone. But it's also something different than that because the Bible is clear. Adam was not deceived. Is that a win or a loss? Is that a victory or a defeat? Did the angels notice that Adam was not deceived by who? Satan. Adam was was not deceived. He's fallen, but not in unbelief, as we've covered before. The woman categorically testifies about something. She's brought as a witness, isn't she? And she testifies. What does she say? I have been deceived, which is... Clear, a clear, and she says, who deceived her, right? She calls Satan what? First time in the Bible he's called this. A liar. She testifies that he is a liar. In court, before the Lord God Almighty, the judge of all things, the I am, Jesus Christ. Imagine the response of the millions of angels. The woman stands up and says, liar. Deceiver. So I ask myself, anybody else do that yet? I have a fallen woman who is calling the one who who is involved in her falling, if you will, she's calling him a liar. So who do I compare her to? A believing angel, because she went into unbelief, so I can't compare her to a believing angel. I compare her to an unbelieving or a fallen angel. I have essentially a fallen person do what? In a court. Testify against Satan. These humans, frail, limited, nonetheless astonishingly wise, Adam could or would not be defeated by Satan. Eve would confess. What do I have here? I have in a court trial, I have two witnesses. In the trial of Satan, two witnesses have come forward to testify against him. 
I, every time I've read this back in the past, I always think about the mafia. Or I think about MS-13, if you want to take it into the beginning, nowadays. Or think about any horrifying group out there. How many people will testify against them? No one testifies. Adam and Eve testify against Satan. It's amazing. Adam would not be fooled and Eve would confess. Neither the man or the woman would take from the second tree. How angry is Satan? We have a pattern of Satan. Every time he loses, he is really angry. He gets furious and he gets destructive, even more so destructive. The man and the woman would not take from the second tree. How long did they not take from the second tree? You can make your predictions based on the feast days of the Lord. They did not take from the second tree. They covered themselves with fig trees and they hid. I ask a lot of times, who are they hiding from? Are they hiding from God? Maybe. Might be an element of that. But they don't eat from the second tree. How long did they go? How angry is Satan? Because he is not winning here. He did not win. Neither man, neither the man or the woman would go to the second tree. A trial now is convened and God presides and sentences Satan to a death penalty, the second death penalty. Let's just go back and talk about this for a second. If the man and the woman had gone to the second tree immediately, or if, it, or if God stops them, because he eventually does stop them, right? He, stop, he, he isolates and he protects the tree of life so that no one can get to it. He guards it with flame. How long did he wait before he did that? If he does it immediately, if they eat of the fruit of, the good, of good and evil and he immediately covers the tree of life so they can't get to it, what would Satan say? Yeah. Let it go. I will destroy them. They will not believe you. Now you understand Job 1. We'll get into the relationship between Job and Adam and Eve. You'll see the same paradigm, if you will, the same techniques. They're all the same. You can figure it all out by comparing them, right? So, anyway, Satan had brought evil to the heavens and evil to the earth. A trial is convened and Satan receives the death penalty. And he has done all of this by the iniquity of his trading. And Satan is told, because you have done this that you have done, the iniquity of his traffic, the abundance of his traffic, in both heaven and earth, God destroys him. Ezekiel 28:16. And thus we have now the new obvious question. As opposed to the most obvious question, we have the, the newest of the most obvious questions. Why two trees? See, we have two trees here. Satan has two trees. For most of my so-called career, I have battled, I've wrestled, I've contemplated the two trees of Adam. As most of you know, it's all over the Internet. Not even a tenth of what I have thought or said about the two trees is on the Internet. Most of it is just written down on pieces of paper. One of the first times I ever saw Supper Dave, he came into my office, and behind me was this big board where I had written hundreds of things that I knew were connected. I took a picture of the board and I can't find the picture. But I had just, every time I would think of something, I'd turn around and write it on the board, knowing that it was important. And I've done the same thing with this. I called it my peanut last year. This is what I've done, or last week, this is what I've done to Genesis 3. I've battled with this, two trees of Adam. It's always been obvious to me that Adam, as a declared type of Christ, Romans 5.14, he's declared in Scripture as a type of Christ. That's that's an astonishing honor. Honor. As the first federal head, Adam is the first federal head. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, is the second or the last federal head. That would be more more correct, last. Christ and Adam, then, if if Adam has two trees... What do I think? Christ has to have two trees. Adam is a declared type. 
there has to be two trees in the New Testament. And, and uh, both Christ and Adam would each have their own two trees. Adam, of course, has his bride builded from his side. Christ has his bride builded from his pierced side. And all of you are familiar with the typologies of Adam, and there are many. I won't repeat them. My point is, yea, a point that Adam has two trees. Christ would certainly have the equivalent. He would have two trees. Though God's two trees would be far more in scope. They would be, the two trees of Adam were literally two trees, but they had, they had this extensive implication, existence, free will, belief, unbelief, life, death, eternal life, eternal death. So where in scriptures then are the two trees of Christ? Yes. Kind of. He's saying that there's a lady in, who pretends to live in Phoenix. But no one can live there. It is imaginary. No one lives in Phoenix. Can't be a single person. If we went to Phoenix, no one would be there. Because no one could possibly live there. But this person that might live there was asking a question about the anti-type issue here. We'll get to that in just a second. Because there is an anti-type. But Adam is a type of Christ. He has two trees. So Christ, I believe, has two trees. And most scholars will propose, by most I mean the published scholars of the theological profession, and it is a business, keep that in mind, but most of them will offer the crucifixion and Gethsemane. They won't make the connection to the two trees of Adam. They just notice that the crucifixion and Gethsemane are really special. And they're right about that. The Gethsemane is, after all, the garden of Christ. The crucifixion is Christ attached to wood. There are other proposals, the transfiguration, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension, the wilderness. But today, for you today, begin to formulate where the two trees of Christ are. There's got to be two. How much do they incorporate? That'll be fun next week. Where in the ministry of Christ is that which corresponds to the two trees of Adam? And keeping in mind that Adam's is far less in comparison to Christ. That's just got to know that when you begin. With that being put forth, that has never been my issue. I've always had that relatively established as I've gone through this to myself. But it's also been apparent that Adam is the king of the organic Eden. And the king of the organic Eden has two trees. So... Satan is the king of the mineral Eden. So, Satan who walked in the midst of the fiery stones of Eden, he would also. We might anticipate Satan would in a similar manner to Adam, he would have two trees. And there's Jennifer's antitype. And antichrist, if you will. Adam as the antitype of Christ, I'm sorry, Adam is the type that Christ's antitype. Satan would be the opposite in the sense that he would have two trees. So where are the two trees of Satan? Christ, creator God, the God man, infinite God and perfect humanity in one. The mystery of godliness, the union of God and perfect humanity. He demonstrates uh, uh, the, the distinction, the contrast to Adam in this sense. Jesus Christ solves sin where Adam did not. Christ is the solution. But Adam is nonetheless honored as a type of Christ. Adam is not destroyed, nor is Eve. Both are saved. They have blood coverings. Not destroyed, both saved. Satan, however, is destroyed, as are his angels at Genesis 3, Lake of Fire. And therefore, placed before us is the equation. It's on a platter. Why was Satan destroyed? He was destroyed because of two trees, the two trees of Satan. What are the two trees? How did Satan step across the horizon of the black hole? Why did he do it? Did he know he was doing it? And his angels followed him. So what are the two trees of Satan and the two trees of the angelic fallen host. God in Romans 1.21 says this. Yay, more Romans. This might even be a Roman study. That's amazing. Let me read you 121 through 30, and you just listen to the language. 
And you decide, now you know it's talking to us. It's written to human beings. But I want you to listen to it carefully. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Who could I be talking about? Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to, to uncleanness in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Obviously, that's talking about human beings there, but you see what I'm trying to do to you. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Who first exchanged the truth of God for the lie? Humans or angels? Who first began to hate God? Humans or angels? And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Who first might have worshipped the creature instead of the creator? For this reason, God gave them up to their vile passions, for even their, their woman exchanged, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. I mean, I have angels giving up that which is natural. Genesis 6. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And they became haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient. Okay. Now, that is about humanity, but I can't help but notice how much of it would fit with the fallen host of the angels. It just is almost perfect. I don't think that's an accident. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. That means, Ezekiel 1.9, that means that what happened on earth is not new. It was new one place only. It is not new under the sun. It's not new in the physical. As I read this, I can't help but wonder, how much would all of this apply to fallen angels? Did they worship Satan? Do they worship Satan? Mankind's going to worship Satan, Revelation 13:4. Do all the fallen angels worship Satan? Do they think that he's God? Do they want him to be God? Do they think he might be God? Who is like the beast, Revelation 13:4? Who is able to make war with him? That's what humanity says. God can't defeat him. That's what humanity says. Christ can't defeat him. Did the fallen angels say that about Satan? They'd be wrong. Revelation 12, 7, the angels of God defeat Satan. Christ and his army of believers defeat Satan. Revelation 19, 14. Next week, more peanuts. <laughs>